Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week, I want to talk a little bit about Cheers and some things about Cheers that you may not know after watching the show for some 30-plus years. So being someone who was on the inside from day one, eh, maybe I'll tell you a fact or two that uh, you don't know about hopefully one of your favorite shows. So that's this week on Hollywood and Levine. Now, to start off, how many of you knew that Cheers almost switched from film to tape. You know, at the beginning of each episode, they say Cheers was filmed before a live studio audience. Well, it was almost Cheers was taped before a live studio audience. And the story behind that is this. About halfway through the first season... Remember, Cheers had been doing terrible in the ratings. And so Paramount thought, well, maybe to save the show, if we went from film to tape, it would be much cheaper. And maybe NBC would decide, well, you know what? It's cheap. What the hell? Let's give it another nine episodes. So they did a test on the stage one day. They lit it differently. They brought in tape cameras. They got the whole cast to do a scene. Jim Burroughs was the director, and Jimmy had a lot of different angles so that you could see the set from all kinds of different locations. Put it together. It was edited, and we brought it up to Les Charles' office and Les and Glenn Charles, Jim Burroughs, me and David, the editor, the line producer, we all sat down and watched this test scene. It was awful, just ghastly. Any charm that the bar had, any softness, any warmth, any real sense of color and fun, all was eliminated. It became just very stark, and it looked ugly. (laughs) Cheers went from looking beautiful to looking ugly. And to the credit of the Charles Brothers and Jimmy Burroughs, that was the end of that experiment. So 
Cheers was never shot on tape. I wonder if that exists. Boy, that would really be fun to see on YouTube someday. It was truly, truly horrifying. When Glenn and Les Charles originally wrote the pilot, Sam Malone was a former football player. He was a former member of the Patriots. But when Ted Danson came in to read, it was pretty clear to everybody that this guy is not believable as a former football player, but he certainly does look athletic, and he certainly could be a former baseball player. And so the Charles brothers went back and did a rewrite of the pilot so that Sam Malone was now a former Boston Red Sox player. When the Charles brothers first had the idea, their original conception was that it would be a show set in a hotel lobby. And then they realized, eh, not a lot of traffic, not a lot of interesting things happen. People just walk through lobbies. They don't really hang out. And then maybe, well, what if we do a restaurant or a bar, something like that? And then Glenn Charles was in Boston and found his way down to the Bull and Finch, which was the inspiration for Cheers, and thought, hey, what about a sports bar? And that's how it evolved into becoming a sports bar. Interestingly, if you go to, well, it's now called Cheers. It used to be called Bull and Finch. It's now called Cheers. But if you go there... The decor is right, the Tiffany lamps and the the brick and the tables, etc., the railings, but it is way smaller. It is just a fraction of the size of Cheers, and the bar is actually up against the wall. The gentleman who owned the bar owns the entire building, and there are libraries upstairs. There are meeting rooms and libraries. And when the final episode of Cheers aired in 1993, all of us were there, the cast, the writing staff, producers, tons and tons of (laughs) invited VIPs. And we were all sitting there watching from that second, in some cases, third story, um, meeting rooms and libraries of the Bull and Finch. I'm sitting there next to Jack Welch, who was the chairman of the board of GE. So it's me and Jack just kind of hanging out watching that final episode. Did you know that there was another character who was supposed to be a regular, an older woman named Mrs. Littlefield? She was written into several of the scripts, and she actually had a few lines in the pilot. A couple of things about the pilot. Number one, it was way too long. And number two, they decided, you know what, this character really isn't popping. And so they cut all of her lines, but there are a few shots in that pilot, if you look very carefully in the background, where Mrs. Littlefield still remains. Interestingly, we cut and we cut and we cut and we cut, and when we put together the final version of the pilot, it was short. So the tag 
that last scene you see where Diane goes to her first customer to take their orders, that was actually filmed months after the original pilot. The pilot was filmed like in March or April, and we started production in August. So it went from being very long, did the pilot, to suddenly being short, and all of us going, now what do we do? More in a moment, but right now I want to talk to all of you writers who are taking advantage of this pandemic to finally write that pilot or screenplay or stage play. Now, I've read thousands of spec scripts, and I'm here to tell you that most of them are bad. A lot of writers have very good ideas, but they just can't get them down on paper. Most of the scripts that I read, again, if I'm being honest here, are just very stilted. The dialogue is very stiff. And you want your script to have a nice flow, a rhythm. It should just glide along. And a lot of these scripts are like you're in a car that just keeps backfiring. So what do you do? You're locked away at home with your computer. Well, you could hire an editor for thousands of dollars. Or you could do what I do, and that is turn to Grammarly. Grammarly is a digital writing tool that will improve your script in immeasurable ways. Spell check and grammar corrections, that's just the beginning. Again, if I'm being honest, I still have no idea when to use a comma, but that's not a problem anymore with Grammarly. But more than that, Grammarly can guide you to a better flow, a clearer vision, a more vivid vocabulary, and just in general, sparkle your script up a little bit. And with all the competition that's out there, you know, just that little edge might be the difference between a sale and no sale. Look, you put in all that time and effort into your script, why not go that one extra step? So check it out. You can sign up for a Grammarly account for free, and you can get real-time spelling and grammar checks as you write. And for deeper insights into your writing, this is what you need to do. Upgrade to Grammarly Premium. It is so worth it. Grammarly works on every platform, so you really have no excuse. And I want you to try it. And you know the podcast drill. I have a special introductory offer. You can get 20% off Grammarly Premium when you sign up now at Grammarly.com slash Hollywood. 20% discount off of the Grammarly Premium package just by going to Grammarly.com slash Hollywood. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash Hollywood. Grammarly, it is the best writing partner that you'll ever have, and you don't have to share credit. There was some confusion early on about the title of the show being Cheers, because a lot of people thought just hearing the word that it was a show about cheerleaders and high school or college. And uh, we all had to say, look, when they see the show, they'll get it. And if they're tuning in, expecting a show about college cheerleaders, well, they'll be disappointed. (laughs) And maybe they'll like this instead, but at least they're watching. So the title Cheers came under some scrutiny. So did the main titles. The main titles were done by Castle Bryant and were pretty remarkable. And NBC originally loved the opening titles. And then the show floundered in the ratings. When the show premiered, 
And I've told this story before. Brandon Tartikoff, who was the president of the network, came to all of us, was sitting in the writer's room and said, look, you guys are doing great work. Don't change anything. You know, if the show doesn't do well early on, we still believe in it. Don't change anything. You're doing a fantastic job. Which is great. Who do you think was the person who suggested that we change the titles? Yep, Brandon Tartikoff. And what he wanted was more of the standard type titles where you saw the actors and maybe a, a clip of them doing something zany. Just those awful cliche opening titles because they were saying, well, the names are up there, but you don't know who's who. And we figured, well, yeah, but there's classy. <laughs> They're classy. And the the song and the whole mood it's telling a story. It's setting the tone for the show. It's not just about seeing George Went have a cross-eyed expression. So they wanted that changed. And, of course, it wasn't. The original theme, this was not. The theme that you hear was not the very first attempt at a Cheers opening title theme by the composers Gary Portnoy and Judy Hart Angelo. They had another couple of songs. The Charles Brothers didn't really take to them, but kind of like them. And then they came up with this, and everyone said, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds pretty good. But Gary Portnoy, he was very smart about this. Once he knew that the Charles Brothers and Jim Burroughs really liked the theme, he said, I'll only give it to you if you let me sing the opening title sequence. Now, he had sung the demo, and we all liked the demo, so they said, okay. And he went off, he recorded it at a studio in Paramount, and I remember... We were unable to go and watch the recording session because we had a script that was due to go to the table, something like that. And so none of us were actually there to witness the performance of the famous song. There's also a full-length version that's eh, not exactly PC when the show started, they figured, okay, well, this is going to be a big hit song. So they released it as a single, but the show was kind of a bomb at the beginning of its run. And so the song died a horrible death. And I think they tried to bring it back a couple of years later when the show gained in popularity, but it never really went anywhere. And like I said, there are some, you know, questionable lyrics as we move forward in time. NBC also wanted, because once the show's not doing well, then it's time to tinker and then it's time to fix it. They also wanted a Danny DeVito, Louis De Palma type character to be part of the, the ensemble, either as like a cop who would come in all the time, who was a, an asshole, or maybe the guy who ran Melville's upstairs. Eventually, we did give Melville's an owner who was kind of an antagonist, but a much more erudite one, as opposed to a Danny DeVito type. You may have noticed that during the entire run of the show, 
I don't think three people ever paid for a drink. <laughs> and you'll also notice that Ted Danson is always cutting up lemons. Why? Because actors like to have something to do. And there they are just standing behind the bar the entire time. And Ted was always looking for business, just something to keep him occupied. So he's not just a talking head standing there. And so they kind of settled on cutting lemons. And uh, Teddy cut hundreds of thousands of lemons over the 11 seasons of Cheers. We had the first year... You talk about stunt casting, and stunt casting is when you bring in some celebrity that is supposed to draw an audience. And generally, you would do this during the November and May sweeps when it was more important to get a larger audience because the ratings during those periods really uh, determined the amount that the networks could charge for their advertising. So for Cheers, we got Thomas Tip O'Neill as our stunt casting in season one. And I'm sure some of you, many of you younger listeners are going, stunt cat, who the hell is Thomas Tip O'Neill? He was the Speaker of the House from 1977 to 1987, and our casting director, Steve Kolchak, his uh, mother or aunt, somebody was like a secretary in his office and got him to come and, and do the show. And we figured, okay, that's kind of fun and interesting. What we wanted to do, he was a very cool guy, but what we wanted to do, he nixed. And that was do the scene in the bathroom. We thought it would really be funny to have Norm and Cliff standing at the urinals, and at the next urinal is the Speaker of the House of Representatives. But uh, uh, Tippo said, no, let's not do that. So we wrote him into the bar, and like I said, he did a very, very good job. Another uh, stunt cast later on, this was probably season seven or eight, and it was an episode that my partner David Isaacs and I wrote, was called Hot Rocks, and talk about a coup. We had Admiral William J. Crow, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm telling you. <laughs> you know, on Friends, they get uh, Madonna and Julia Roberts, and ha, nothing. We get... Admiral William J. Crow. The fun story concerning that is that the episode was originally written for Larry Bird because the premise is whoever this person is, originally Larry Bird, comes to the bar as a friend of Sam's. They go off to some big celebrity fancy fundraiser. Rebecca is invited she rents these gorgeous diamond earrings, and after the event, the diamond earrings disappear, and she thinks that Larry Bird stole her earrings. And we had told Larry Bird the story, so he was not uh, unaware 
of what we were asking him to do and how we were going to portray him. And then at the last minute, he just bailed on us. Just as another reason why I hate Larry Bird. So we're looking to find somebody, and I don't know how out of the blue Admiral William J. Crow's name came to the surface, but we said, yeah, okay, let's do that. We had to rewrite the script, certainly, to accommodate that, but it turned into a very funny episode, and there were some great jokes, and he, too, was a very good sport, except there was one joke that he wouldn't do. He's sitting at the bar with Norman Cliff, and the guys say to him, so, like, you can just make a phone call and push a button and send nuclear warheads to Russia? And he goes, yeah. And Norm puts down 50 bucks and goes, 50 bucks right now. He didn't think that that was particularly appropriate. (laughs) What was also pretty fascinating about having him on the set for a couple of days was that he had the guy standing behind him who had handcuffed to his wrist the black box, and every hour and a half, they would have to call in to the White House or the Pentagon, wherever, Oprah Winfrey, and report in. And so one time I'm talking to this guy, and I said, can I, can I see what's inside the black box, please? I pay my taxes. I, I was in the Army Reserves. I have a secret military clearance. And he said, sure. And he opened it up, and I was expecting this super high-tech, futuristic equipment. This looked like old Radio Shack crap, like an old black phone. Just looked, like I said, something that you would buy at a garage sale. That was the famous black box. Okay, here's another casting story. We had heard, and I don't know from who, that Richard Burton, the great Richard Burton, was going to guest star on The Fall Guy, which was the Lee Major show. So we thought, wow, okay, if Richard Burton is doing TV, then maybe he'll he'll do our show. So a part was written, an episode called The Spy Who Came In for a Cold One. It's from season one. It was written by David Lloyd, very excellent script. And we sent it out to see if Richard Burton might want a guest star and play the role. It's about a guy who came in and pretended to be a spy and... Uh, actually a very good part. Well, Richard Burton's people said, what are you talking about? This is never going to happen in a million years. He's not doing the fall guy. So, uh, okay, well, now what do we do? Glenn, I remember, suggested an actor called Jack Elam. And Jack Elam basically played in Westerns. He had this really kind of uh, scroungy look with one eye going in the opposite direction. You've seen him in a million things. And we thought, wow, 
and, and he passed, by the way. We thought, wow, this has got to be the first time that Richard Burton <laughs> and Jack Elam were both up for the same part. And, of course, both of them passed. We ended up getting a fine Broadway actor, Ellis Rabb, who is nothing like either of those two gentlemen. Another rumor that led us astray, somebody said that Lucille Ball loved Cheers. We're going to do an episode with Diane's mother. It was written by David Angel. We all thought, wouldn't it be amazing to get Lucy to come on as Diane's mother? So they contacted Lucy, and Lucy said, come on over for lunch. So the Charles brothers and Jimmy went over to her house in Beverly Hills to have lunch with her. And they say, uh, so we understand that you're big fans of Cheers. And she goes, I've never seen it. Uh, Somebody said it was good, but I've, I've never seen it. And they said, oh, well, we were wondering whether or not you wanted to guess. No, I don't. I don't do television anymore. Certainly not going to do television for a show I've never heard of. Well, okay, sit down and have lunch. And that was their lunch with Lucy. We ended up getting Glynis Johns, who did a very fine job. And finally, I want to talk about Bar Wars. That was an episode that is very near and dear to my heart and also scared the crap out of me. We usually did 24, 25 episodes a season on Cheers. They just kept ordering more and more because by then the show was really popular and they wanted to get as many as they could. At the very last minute, they ordered one more show. So Glenn and Les called David Isaacs and I in to write it because we write fairly quickly and we obviously know the show and we've worked with them for a long time. And collectively, we all came up with the idea of a practical joke war between Cheers and their rival, Gary's Old Town Tavern. And we mapped out this story and then this was a Friday no outline, no nothing, just mapped it down. We took notes. And then David and I went off and wrote the script over the weekend because the idea was we would turn it in on Monday, everyone would polish it, and Wednesday it would go to the table. And we did the best we could writing a script in two days. Looming overhead was a Writers Guild strike. They were in negotiations, and it was the 11th hour, and all indications were that they were going to reach a settlement. Well, at (laughs) 11.59, that Sunday night, no, uh, go on strike. So we had to go on strike. I turned in the script. They had already paid for the script. We were allowed to turn it in. And the rule was that they could shoot whatever existing material they had, but they couldn't rewrite. 
No one was allowed to change any of the writing. It is not like there were any other scripts in the pipeline. So what they had to do was film our two-day first draft of Bar Wars. And the night that it filmed, I have to tell you, it was one of the scariest nights of my life because I thought, okay, now we are going to be revealed as the frauds we are. Wait till they have to do a show that's not polished and rewritten by everyone else. Now it's just us, just bare-ass naked out there on the stage. Very relieved that it played well. It played very well. That said, I wish we would have had four days to write the script. It would have been better. That said, it still would have been better had the entire staff been able to tweak it a little bit. There are places where there are jokes that could be better. There are jokes that I would want to take a second look at. But considering the situation, considering it was written in two days and then just filmed, like I said, I am very proud of that show. So those are a few things about Cheers that you may or may not have known. Again, uh, thank you to everybody who is still a big fan of the show, who still watches it on Hulu and CBS All Access, and they have the DVDs, and uh, I don't even know if it's on TV anymore. probably is somewhere on some channel 1,472. But again, thanks. It has been now, oh God, like, 38 years (laughs) and people are still watching and appreciating cheers and for that i cannot thank you enough that will do it for this week hollywood and labine our thanks as always to adam and Susie meister butler howard hoffman along with jason and bruce miller and uh, jonathan wolford can't forget jonathan wolford Uh, if you want to email me you can do that very easily. Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. That's Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. I'm also on Twitter at Ken Levine. You can find me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Sign up for all those things, why don't you? Please subscribe to the podcast, and I will join you again next week. Hollywood and Levine.